On Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz, we take a cinematic excursion through the work of groundbreaking Filipino thespian Vic Diaz. Welcome to Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz. On this episode, we're looking at Basil Bradbury and Neil Urema's A Taste of Hell from 1972, starring John Garwood, William Smith, and of course, Vic Diaz as Major Kuramato. I'm Liam O'Donnell, and with me as always is my comandante, Doug Tilly. Doug, how are you doing? Is that right? Do I have like a, a sense of authority over you, Liam? Is that how you see our relationship? I mean, I do in the sense of, uh, you know, pulling the curtain back. I tried, I, I host, I think, two of our, what is it, 25 podcasts now. <laughs> and every time Doug has to remind me, like, you know, you host this one. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I host <laughs> this one. It's, it's you know, it's basically my punishment for having any ideas, you know, so the, the podcast, which uh, I had as ideas later, you punish me by making me host them. And that's yes. fine. I don't mind doing that. That's it's It's not that I don't want to do it. It's that every time I'm embarrassed that I forgot. That's the real issue. I don't mind doing it. I just hate being reminded that I'm an idiot. That's that's the real issue there. I mean, I hate to put it this way, Liam, but if this is something that bothers you, perhaps you can find some way to remind yourself about you it. You know, I, I, look, I am barely holding on to digital calendar life as it is. I'm not trying to complicate myself anymore. <laughs> Uh, all this stuff was so much easier when a pandemic meant that we weren't allowed to do anything. But right, now there's yes. still a pandemic and we have to do everything. It's out of control, right? And I regularly make the decision, is what we're about to do worth the risk of catching a disease? <laughs> yes. I mean, like I said, I got the booster. So I feel like a little bit like I have superpowers. But now that there's apparently uh, uh, Omnicron or whatever it is, it's like it sounds like that the – the big head from the Transformers movie that eats mm-hmm. planets. That's right. I'm, I'm just like, uh, it's hard not to be worried about everything, Doug. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about <laughs> the man, Vic Diaz. Uh, his his film, A Taste of Hell from 1972. Uh, this is interesting because, as people know who've listened to this show a lot, we're jumping around in time. We're hitting different eras of his career. And this is very solidly a war film. Um, yes. And I realized, Doug, I have no read on you as far as war films. We haven't covered a ton of war movies in, you know, this. What, how long have we been podcasting together? 50 years now? Yeah, Six, yeah. Eric years? Roberts doesn't do a lot of war movies. No, no. It's it's not something we cover a lot. And, and I'm just curious, like, are you a fan of this genre? Because, uh, you know, recently there haven't been a ton of war movies, a couple here and there. But there was a time when it was a big chunk of what was film, was depicting various war various battles various escapes from prison camps all that kind of thing doug are you a fan of war movies what are, what are some of the war movies that you like uh liam francois truffaut famously said that it's impossible to make an anti-war film because the very process of showing these war uh you know the the, the elements of war are so exciting that they will intention uh, unintentionally promote the idea of war as opposed to promoting the idea of the world would be much better without it I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. A movie like All Quiet on the Western Front, I think, works pretty well as an anti-war movie. Uh, you know, there's there are a lot that that kind of confirm what he says, though, right? There are so many uh, war movies that focus so much on the explosions that you can see how even though you watch something like Apocalypse Now and it seems like hell on earth, there are some people who see that and they think of it as, oh, there's you know, that's that that's a that's a hell I want to be a part of. That's something I want to involve myself with. So it's it's something that I'm of two minds about. I mean, obviously, I don't have any particularly positive feelings for the uh, the military generally, and certainly the concept of war is something that I'm morally I find morally abhorrent. But I do like a lot of war movies, and there is something about the induced camaraderie of war that I think makes for good movies because you know the men on a mission movies are one of my favorite genres and that really um, and war movies have a lot of those elements to them groups of you know small groups of people who have to go and do one specific thing against ridiculous odds 
But the thing is, when you think of the wider scope of war, and it's particularly World War II, which is a lot of war movies are about that particular war, um, there's a lot of positivity around World War II. But if you think about the larger scope of it, and particularly, you know, things like the Holocaust and things about, you know, mass murder of, of the Russian soldiers and, I mean, just all of the stuff around it, it's hard. The, the, the idea of making something exciting and fun around that, it seems completely l- ludicrous, right? So I have to say, I do enjoy a lot of war films while finding the concept behind a lot of war movies a little bit reprehensible. Yeah, I don't... Hmm. I I want to say I don't like war films because of two things that you sort of touched on. One is, you know, I don't appreciate war uh, and I don't appreciate anyone's military. And inevitably, a lot of war films, especially like classic war films, they can't sure. help but sort of valorize their heroes, right? That's what it's about. It's telling the, the story of our heroes. And it's only more modern war films that attempt – to uh, depict the, the the travails of war, the, the hell of war. And those still end up being exciting action films for someone. There's someone right. watching it who isn't vibing with the hell of it all and instead is looking at minimum at a video game they would like to play, right? That even if they're not willing to invest their own body, they certainly would like virtually to be there, uh, as we can tell from the popularity of war video games. You know what I'm sure, saying? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. On the other hand, I I have to admit, I don't know that I've seen enough of them to even have a super strong opinion about the genre of war films. Does that make sense? Like, Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, maybe if you really trace back, you, you'd realize that you saw more than you might think. I mean, the other thing sure. about it, and this is something I didn't necessarily bring up, but is very applicable to what we're going to talk about today, is that we, you and I, have, if the war movies that we have been exposed to have likely almost exclusively been american war movies and there tends to be a jingoistic aspect yes patriotic aspect tied up in them certainly before like like 1990 let's say there's a lot more uh pro world war ii movies let's say than probably have come out in the last 20 30 years or so where you're right there tends to be a little bit more nuance though not always the case but certainly that jingoism is something that i um, automatically react kind of negatively yeah. towards. I think. I think though, I've actually seen the the reason I'm pausing is because I know there's a bunch of like classic, which I'm sure are very jingoistic American war films. I actually haven't seen like sure. certain certain pillars of the genre are completely unknown to me. And honestly, I haven't seen them because I, I don't care. I'm just not really interested in them. Um, Have and, you ever heard that that people there's there's like a great deal of people to the point where there's been articles written about it who watch full metal jacket which is clearly an anti-war film yes yes and they see the first half of that film or even sometimes both halves of the film but certainly the first half which for those who haven't seen full metal jacket is all about the the training of soldiers and it's particularly sadistic and they see that and that has actually inspired them to join the military as opposed to what it's supposed to do which is make you think my god is this what we're turning people into I mean, is this dissimilar from people's reaction to Starship Troopers when everyone was like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe Paul Verhoeven is a fascist. And Verhoeven was like, no, the book is fascist. I'm making the fun book of the book. Fascist. The book is a fascist. But how does no one know that this is a fascist? And the fact that now, you know, they're, they're in literal discussions to reboot Starship Troopers to be more faithful to the book, which is like the yeah. worst possible idea. Oh, well, my God. You saw some, you know, some right wing conservatives who couldn't accept that Robocop was satirical when I, I mean, the, this satire right. in Robocop is so on its face and so obvious but I mean, you know, you'll never go broke underestimating the American public. Sure, sure. That's no, that's very fair. I think I, I guess what it boils down to for me is, I it's not that I'm against violence, especially fictionalized violence. But I think I walk a weird line with with war movies. Part of it is, like you said, a lot of them are very jingoistic, and I'm supposed to believe in one side over another. And in some ways, I can kind of feel that. We'll we'll get into this later. Um, sometimes <laughs> war movies. Uh, they depict the other side in a way that is very dehumanizing. But then you remember how the other side. <laughs> I'm only laughing because I'm thinking of the movie that we're going to be yeah. talking about. Today. But then you remember like the actual history and you go, oh, right. Yeah, I might be cruel in my depiction as well if that had happened yeah. to me. So like, you know, I, I'm not saying that in of itself disqualifies. It's just it's one of the things that leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Another is like, um, you know, I like 
fictionalized fantasy violence, right? Like right. Mm-hmm. actual wars are probably not that exciting. And, you know, when you're playing your war video game and you're doing all kinds of cool, fancy shit, that's not how it was. You know what I mean? It, it, it's the, the, the reality of violence is actually far more grim and not exciting than this sort of fantasy world we've created. And I think a lot of war films tend to lean more into something that I wouldn't say is realistic, but is less entertaining to me. And and mm-hmm. I, I think the combo of like the propaganda with that kind of bums me out somewhat. Um, but but I'm not against it either. And there's certainly examples that stand out. It's it's like how I don't love I don't love country supposedly, but I have a few like Johnny Cash and Hank Williams records. You know what I mean? Or it's or kind I of a cliche you... thing to say though, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, sure. That, that's a very cliche thing. It's like I don't like country except for you know the man. But in that's black what. I, but that's what. But that's what I'm saying. Outlaw country. No, but that's but that's exactly what I'm saying though. Is that like you can I can say oh I don't like this thing generally, but there are exceptions to that rule. You know what I mean? Like I I don't much you know like away from country because I guess a lot of people talk about that, but uh you know I don't really like. Uh, metalcore, but I like the first Cave-In record, which is basically the one of the, you know, uh, progenitors of the whole genre. It's like it, it, there are examples of war movies I like, you know, like, you know, uh, both, as, as you said, Apocalypse Now. Uh, I kind of like, uh, I don't remember the name of it, but there's a Korean war film that came out right when I was getting into, oh, I wish I had it in front of me. I have the DVD somewhere. This isn't very I'm interesting. I'm sorry, y'all. But let me go American. Let me go American again. I don't. I like Platoon. You know, that's technically a war sure. film. Um, granted, I mean, there are. I think. Sorry, I was just going to say that because of the complicated relationship with the Vietnam War that the U.S. has, and the fact that there weren't a lot of Vietnam-related movies made up until Apocalypse Now, and a lot of them tend to kind of try to deal with the fact that people have such a mixed feeling on that war generally. I do think there's a lot of great Vietnam War movies, and it's mostly because no one feels the need to make a movie that you feel good about in regards to that, at least since the Green Berets. But I mean, like that's that's a war that makes for a lot of really good movies because you don't necessarily have to put that jingoistic aspect into it, though there's a few jingoistic Vietnam movies as well. Oh, sure. I mean, it's sometimes it's hard for... Uh, it's hard for Americans to avoid doing it. They just do it, you know, whether it's necessary or not. (laughs) They're just going to do it. Uh, The film I'm thinking Have you ever seen the movie The Rules of Engagement with uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Samuel L. Jackson? Mm, I don't know, actually. I'm going to say I I don't know. I'm only bringing it up because I just watched it because I'm I'm about to record in a couple of days a a roundtable on the entire career of William Friedkin, the, the great director of The Exorcist. And uh, and the French Connection and et cetera, et cetera. And he directed this movie. And <laughs> it's funny that we're talking about this now because that movie starts in Vietnam and it has Samuel L. Jackson's character. Uh, what happens is that he's friends with Tommy Lee Jones's character and they're in Vietnam. And uh, Tommy Lee Jones gets attacked by a group of North Northern Vietnamese. And Samuel L. Jackson has their commander and their like, communications guy. He's captured them. And he just blows the communication guy away in front of the commander in order to get the commander to order his men to retreat away to save Tommy Lee Jones's uh, life. And so that takes place in Vietnam. Then the entire rest of the movie takes place in present day where where Samuel L. Jackson's character straight up commits a war crime and he's put on trial for it. And one of the things that they do in this trial is they bring in this northern uh, Vietnamese commander guy to come in and, and say, look, he's been brutal before. He's murdered someone. He's committed a war crime before. And then the entire movie ends. You will not believe this, Liam. <laughs> Samuel Jackson's character gets acquitted. By the way, we're, we're meant to think that he's a good guy after really seeing him murder women and children. Anyway, he walks out of the courtroom and the Vietnamese commander is out there getting in his car and he sees him and he stops and he salutes him. And it was, I could not believe my gross, fucking eyes. Gross. It is so gross. <laughs> the, the the movie I was thinking of, Doug, is... Uh, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this very well, but Tai Tai Gokki. It's a the subtitle is The Brotherhood of War. Oh, I know um, that movie absolutely. Yeah, I love that movie, and that's a very much a war film. But I also think it has elements that are a bit fantastical to it, and I right, think that right, right. makes it easier to watch. Anyways, so the movie we're talking about today is a war film. It also has some other elements that we'll we'll explore a little more. Um, but it's it's worth noting that I don't think either one of us are fans necessarily in the deepest sense of war films that we do like some 
uh, I wonder if that's going to bias us like, when we're discussing this movie today. What do you think, Doug? It's difficult because there's also a whole subgenre of war yeah. films that are just presented as kind of like cheap entertainment, right? Yes. I mean, that you're not supposed to really think about the larger scope of what's going on in the war, that this is just... And that really goes down to a lot of those Men on a Mission movies. Like, the, when you watch The Dirty Dozen, you don't necessarily think about the fact that this is taking place, you know, it taking place during World War II, which has just so much horrific violence on both sides and so many complicated issues within it, and it ends in such a, you know, monumental way. It's really just about a bunch of people on death row being trained to murder a bunch of Nazis, and you're not supposed to feel too morally conflicted about it. Right. I, I felt a little bit more, actually probably significantly more morally conflicted about some of the things that we're going to see in the movie that we're talking about today, which is interesting for a number of different reasons, but uh, I think a lot of those are more interesting in retrospect than they were at the time that this movie, movie came out. I will say, Liam, and this is not to give anything away before we start talking about it, you cannot find a positive review of A Taste of Hell. Nobody likes this movie. Yeah. It is a universally, not like hated, just universally ignored or derided movie. It's just not a movie that people give a shit about. So let's talk about it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> friends, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and see if we can find something good to say about <laughs> 1973's A Taste of Hell. We'll be right back. It is with great pleasure that I pour this toast for you, Captain Seiko. You've done your job well. Thank you very much. I must be honest and tell you that at first I was not at all impressed with your tactics in the area. Too soft. Much too lenient. I'm sorry that you felt that way, sir. They fought savagely for the love of their country. An explosive war epic depicting the heroic stand for patriotism from the hills down to the devastated countryside. It's 1973's A Taste of Hell. Uh, Co-directed by Basil Bradbury. Uh, This is his only directorial effort, but he was a cinematographer on Invasion of the Star Creatures from 1962, uh, Ted V. Mickles' Strike Me Deadly from 1963, and the 1970 experimental film Do Not Throw Cushions Into the Ring, uh, also co-directed by Neil Yarima. Uh, this is his only directorial credit. However, uh, he has a writing credit on this as well, though this is his only writing credit. that uh, Well, <laughs> at least that Doug could find. Who knows? Doug's yeah, bad that, at research. That's uh, true. <laughs> <laughs> starring uh, John Garwood, William Smith, Lisa Lorena, Roderick Powlate, and of course, the man, Vic Diaz. Um, a quick note before we get into uh, finding out what you think about this movie, Doug. A clip of this movie, specifically the decapitation scene, was shown in the Norwegian TV debate program, Pasparket. <laughs> sure, that's how that's pronounced. <laughs> oh, I have no idea how it's pronounced, but I was going to go for it anyway. On the Norwegian TV debate program, Pasparket. On the 11th of December, 1980, this program was the start of a long and heated debate about so-called video nasties in Norway. The movie was almost labeled as a video nasty, along with movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Exterminator, Cannibal Holocaust, etc. Honestly, I don't see it at all comparable to those movies. Isn't it amazing to think about that? It it, it would all be... We we talked about video nasties on our uh, when we talked about censor on uh-huh. one of our episodes fairly recently, but it's interesting that that video nasty scare traveled around the world. It never really hit the United States, which had its own kind of like the satanic panic thing hit a little bit harder. But the idea that there were other countries kind of struggling with the same thing, but that this movie in particular, and in this movie, that decapitation scene, which is let's face it, Liam, for you and I, a highlight of the entire it's movie. It's awesome. It's unbelievable. But, but it's also like it's not like it's super gory. I mean, you ever no. see Dr- Drive-In Massacre where yeah. some of the decapitations in that? It's it's it basically as bloodless and goofy as you could possibly make a decapitation, and they put that on TV to show that they should start banning movies. Hey, if you started banning a, mo- a movie like this, the you'd never stop. That not only is it basically bloodless. It ends with a close-up of Vic Diaz's head where he might as well be winking at the camera, honestly. But let's let's not go there immediately. Let's start with just the basics. Doug, what did you think of the gripping war drama, A Taste of Hell? Uh, no, I did not like A Taste of Hell. I know you didn't just ask that, but I'm just going to just put it right out there. I did not like this movie. Nobody could really like it. It does get kind of boring, at, at, especially – in the uh, the middle chunk of the movie. It really does pick up in the last 10 minutes or so. 
But because it's obvious that people are not going to like this, I do want to talk just quickly about three things that I liked about it, just briefly. One is that it's kind of unique for us on this show, even though we watch films that almost exclusively were filmed in the Philippines, to see a movie that A, has a lot of Filipino characters, and B, actually focuses on those characters and their traditions within the Philippines. And that's something this movie does to a really great extent. It, it, it very much humanizes them. It's very much a kind of a patriotic Filipino picture. And while I don't think that necessarily makes it good, I mean, we were just talking about jingoism in the U.S. and the fact that we're, it's distasteful. It's just unique. And there is something unique about that part of the film, particularly when they're having like a celebration and they're dancing and they're, you know, they're roasting the pig and things like that. It felt like we were seeing something that we really should have seen in a lot of the Filipino movies that we've covered so far. The second thing I want to say that's good about this movie is that final 10 minutes where suddenly it's like they remembered that they were trying to make an entertaining movie and it's just endless gunplay and violence and people falling and these crazy stunts and uh, and that decapitation is part of it. Now, again, it's a war movie and you, the human cost of this sort of thing is it's hard not to have it in your head. Uh, but all that aside for like an entertaining action-y sequence it, it makes the whole movie, I mean, it trumps so much of the rest of the movie that it's a little bit embarrassing. It actually makes everything before it seem less interesting when it wasn't that interesting uh, already. The third thing is Vic Diaz, who I think is terrific in this. And it is very much a prototypical Vic Diaz performance. A, he's playing Japanese. B, he's playing the commander of some sort of group of people. And C, he's just a complete fucking asshole. But we'll get to him in just a little bit. I was going to say, I, don't waste all the Vic Diaz now. We're going to get to him later. The only other thing I want to mention is there is a so this is a very simple war movie. The the Japanese are uh, uh, there. Uh, this is during World War Two. So the Japanese are stationed in the Philippines. They're obviously not treating the people there very well. There's American soldiers there who are working with the Philippines uh, Filipinos. Uh, one of them is William Smith. One of them is John Garwood. And John Garwood, we see at the beginning of the movie, get horribly injured in an attack. And the rest of the movie. <laughs> He has been horribly scarred, so half his face is just completely Dr. Fibes'd, uh, all right? And he has to wear this big straw hat, and he's basically this monster that wanders into the Filipino town sometimes to get, like, food and stuff like that, but basically lives in a cave, and he befriends a little kid. It's like this little monster movie side plot in the middle of this war movie. It's not good, but it's certainly different, and I have to give it that. So there are things in this movie that I have to say. I did like elements of it, and I can see where there was a thought process here. But overall, it's really boring and not very good. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to agree with Doug on this one. I mean, I I found aspects of it very interesting, but not in an entertainment way, more in like a sociological <laughs> way. Yes. Um, and I will say you, you kind of answered one of the questions I had, which is like, is this as much a monster movie as it is a war movie? And I, I think it is, especially when we take into account the ways that it is a war movie, similar to the ways that it is a monster movie, are very Filipino exploitation, which, to be clear, in the cycle of the sorts of movies that were being made in the Philippines, this is a bit early in the cycle. 1973 is not exactly later in the, you know, in in the let's go to the Philippines and make a, a million movies. It's, it's sort right. of early on in that cycle, and yet... It's a war movie, but it's a war movie, of course, about rebels in the jungle, about them working with the local folks. All of that is very specific to a lot of different Filipino movies, even some that aren't set in World War II, have a lot of the same themes that this movie does. So it, yeah. it's almost like a trendsetter in that way. Uh, and then even the monster, like, I mean, he's not a monster, y'all. He's just a, a guy who's disfigured, who apparently doesn't want to communicate to anyone now or something. It's very strange he, because it's not just that he's disfigured. He just, he wanders around and murders Japanese soldiers. That's all he kind of does. But then sometimes he murders other people and it's not clear like what's happened to his brain that he's now acting this way. I don't know. It was, it, he obviously I, thinks of himself as a monster right. at that point. Right. So, I mean, he's basically shunning himself, but he also, the only thing he wants is occasionally food and to kill Japanese soldiers. So that's what he's going to spend his but, time doing. But let's be clear, y'all. He's a burn victim. It's not like yeah. there was radiation and that he mutated or some shit. He's just a guy with a burn on his face. There's and no there are reason. people who love him and like yes. really care about him 
very nearby that he is not reaching out to. Yeah, it's very, the whole thing is very strange. But even the kind of, if he is a monster, and we are right that this is also a monster movie, it's a very exploitation Filipino monster movie. You know what I mean? Like, it's very much that the way he shows up at the various villages and stuff, it's, he might as well be like a tiger man or something, you know? Like, it's, 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 I, I mean, I, you know, you, one of the things that, that Doug told me off mic is that this movie got pretty wide distribution in the U.S. I wonder how much this movie, even though it was not well-loved, did influence other productions in the Philippines. Because there are moments in this movie that reminded me of other Filipino exploitation movies I've seen. Um, but all that being said, that's all very interesting to me. This is mostly a boring movie. Not a yeah. lot happens. They want you to be compelled by the drama of it all there's there's some love stories going on there's a there's a child who has the worst humpback prosthetic i've ever seen in my life uh and, and there's the drama of of the filipino you know the Filipino the filipino village is both harboring the rebels and managing the expectations of the japanese soldiers and of course among the japanese soldiers there's the one commander who's to some extent human still bad but you know it's not a total monster and then of course there's vic fucking diaz who's just like you know <laughs> born from the pits of hell like that's his role is to be cruel in every way uh and and so like you know there's all this various uh dramatic elements that should be very gripping and somehow they just miss actually getting any tension out of the film there's the eventually the japanese soldiers kidnap all the women from the village they're trying to put pressure on the rebels there's all this like you know fear of of of, of dying and there's one moment i want to get to in a little bit that's actually horrifying sure but other than that, a lot of it isn't that interesting until there's little bursts of violence and then an explosion of violence at the end. Um, and, and that's kind of, you know, it's kind of frustrating. Um, I did want to ask, taking into account how ramped up that ending is, you know, one of the ways people judge war movies is is by, you know, people don't usually say action, I guess, when they're talking yeah, about a war movie. They, they just, they just, but, but that's part of it, right? Every... Every war movie decides how much violence they're going to show. Some actually show very little, and some show a lot. In fact, that's most of the movie is people killing each other. Uh, how did you feel about the depiction of violence in this movie? Did you think it was well done? Did you think it was exciting? Did you think it was uh, maybe exploitative in a negative way? How did you feel about this movie on, on that level? I mean, you have to accept that this is an exploitation movie first, right? This is not a serious uh, interrogation of the Japanese, uh, you know, uh, occupation of the Philippines during World War II, and you can't look at it that way. And again, there's all, we already talked about some of the unpleasant aspects of it, and the, dehum, the dehumanization part of the Japanese soldiers is part of that as well. So when you accept that this is a very simplistic, these are the bad guys, they're evil, these are the good guys, we want to support them, here's handsome William Smith, he's in the middle of it, you know, handsome American, and there's a hunchbacked monster roaming around as well, which is not a usual part, but that's part of it here. Accept that first. I wish there was more violence. I mean, I know that's kind of a shitty thing to say, but the highlights of this movie are the violent parts of it. It is the gunplay. The 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 stuntmen that are working in this movie are working very hard when they're working. The opening segment has some good action and a lot of explosions and things like that, a lot of squibs, but the movie only really comes alive when that action hits, and that really only happens in the final 10 minutes when it's just you know a constant stream of explosions and people getting shot and falling and stuff like that. So I, I wish I could feel conflicted about the violence in this movie, yeah. but the fact is it is the clear highlight. So if you're watching this movie for any reason, it better be for that violence because otherwise you have nothing to recommend this movie. I mean, that that's the long and the short of it, y'all, is that the, the movie is trying to focus on the human drama and not focus on the violence alone. But there's nothing to the human drama in this film. There's <laughs> nothing there. It is a blank spot. And, and again, I don't think it's a... I don't think it's primarily a script issue, uh, though I think that's part of it. Um, and I don't think it's just performances. It, it's like there's that amalgamation where you have a you have the good you have a good director, you have a quality script, you have quality performances, and it all comes together and you're sucked in. There's a distance here. Everyone is a little bit wooden. Um, 
uh, it's not helped by the fact that everyone is dubbed as well. Yes, like it's, it's it, 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 and not particularly well dubbed. The narrative of the script isn't bad, but the dialogue is not very gripping. It's mm-hmm. just nothing really clicks in the film to suck you in, other than and and I will say this for real, other than. Our man Vic Diaz, which we'll, we'll get more to him in a sec, but he's one of the few performances in the movie that I think is really sort of stand out despite being dubbed. I think he still yeah. is very present in a way that th- some of these other actors just aren't there all the time. And th- that's, it's, you know, it's a shame. Um, one of the things you noted, and I want to uh, agree with, is that unlike some of the other films we've covered, there is a strong presence of actual Filipino characters in this film. Uh, but we do have these two anchor white characters. Now, one of them, <laughs> as we said, becomes a monster. Let, let's discount him, you know. Uh, but the other one, you know, he, he's supposedly there, it feels like to me, as a surrogate for white audiences, right? Assuming, you know, of course, at this time when people are put in the white guy, they're thinking of white Americans, really. Possibly Europeans as well, but often Americans they're hoping are going to see this movie. Uh, Is he necessary to the film? You know, now, uh, of course, we would argue that in all these films where there are all these white surrogates in the Philippines, they're not necessary in a meta sense. But in the way the films are designed, they're often necessary because none of the Filipino characters are allowed to be people. So you need at least one white man or white woman there so they get to be a full human being. In this film, the guy almost feels superfluous. I found myself wondering, like... Is he working for the CIA? Like, why is he there? Like, what's happening? Like, what is his role here? And and why is he even in this movie? I don't know. What What did you think of our surrogate white man character in the film? I mean, it it's not really a question of what do you think of him, right? We're talking about why do you think he's here at all? Sure, sure. It, it is. A, yeah, it's superfluous to a great extent. The fact is, it's William Smith. He made a thousand exploitation and drive yes, movies yes. in the 1970s. He is a perfectly good actor. He's been good in a lot, and he's fine here. He's the, he's certainly not the weak link in this movie. He just doesn't have a lot to do. It's kind of funny because at the beginning, it's it feels like he's going to be like the central part of the entire plot, and then he goes away for like forty minutes, and they just like check in on him every once in a while up until the end of the movie. Um, I mean, it's it's clear that someone felt you could not market this movie outside of the Philippines unless you had a white star star right, and the star that they could afford is William Smith. I mean, we might as well be asking, why do we have Pam Greer in the big birdcage, right? I mean, why do we have the, these movies that but, would but, be made in the Philippines? But uh, unlike those other movies, I think this movie addresses his presence, like, almost directly, because the whole movie, people are referencing General MacArthur, that he's going to come back and save them someday. And yeah. then towards the end of the film, they're like, we're, we're going to raise the right flag. And the woman says, an American flag? And he says, no. A Filipino flag. A very and interesting moment in this movie. It, I think. I think it's about the. It, the film is essentially about. We the do not need fi- the Americans. Yeah, Filipinos yeah, asserting their own identity and saying like, no offense to the Americans or anything, but we don't need them. And in fact, the this white character, I keep referring to him as the surrogate white man. I'm not referring to him as the white savior. He he does nothing. He has nope. no. He's he's not useful. He dies tragically. The, his whole subplot is just a another reason to be bummed accidentally kills his own best friend yeah uh well actually it's not clear that it's accidental which is one of the things i was going to ask you about it's true i think he kills him on purpose but why why does he oh, do i it? thought it's, i thought it's because he's dressed as a japanese soldier and he can't notice that a he has a hunchback and b that he's completely burned i don't know that whole scene was confusing i found the whole thing confusing anyways <laughs> the point the point is this though uh he is useless in the film, and the fact that so much of the film is about asserting Filipino identity, not in contrast to the U.S., it's not an anti-U.S. film, but indifference to. Does that make sense? Like, it's not against the U.S. It's not like, also, fuck America. It's like, okay, General MacArthur, sure, sure, sure. But this is about who we are and how yeah, we need it's to about, stand it's up. about a lack of agency and reasserting that agency, absolutely. Right. And, right. and especially because I don't think people in the West necessarily consider the Filipino position when it comes to World War II and the idea, right? I mean, this is a, it's kind of a really strange thing to think about. You have these Filipino actors playing Japanese in this movie because there's enough of a resemblance that allows them to do that. And, but, and, and, and playing them in a very kind of, a very similar way to how Americans present Japanese in a lot of war movies of that time period as well, right? Very racist in a lot of ways, very, very stern and very exploitative. But it's just, 
what if it was almost like a what if scenario? It's like what if there was an American war movie that takes place in the Philippines where the Filipinos are there, but the Filipino characters become the heroes at the end. That right. They become, exactly. That said, I do think hero is kind of a weird word to use simply because the end of this movie, you're certainly not left with a positive feeling about the 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 future of that area uh, because of, of all the bloodshed that occurs. I agree. It's it's a very dark film. It doesn't leave anyone on a note that where they can feel good. I mean, I guess seeing the image of some like fleeing Japanese soldiers might be sufficient for some people. But, you know, uh, speaking of this uh, depiction of the Japanese, and I think also in relation to the actual history of the area, one of the things we haven't mentioned yet, but I think it's important to highlight is the very brutal sexual violence against women in this, in this film. It is, it is not just hinted at. It is a almost essential plot point in the film, um, or at least highlighted that way. And it is not pleasant. And uh, Doug, what, what were your thoughts about that in relation to, you know, how this movie functions and and the history of the area? It's really weird, right? Because we have kind of a lead female character in this movie played by Lisa Lorena. Uh, that's Maria. In it. And Maria had a relationship with John Garwood's character before he got horribly burned. And also William Smith's character is in love with her. She is seen as basically perfect, right? She's beautiful. She's she, Everyone loves her. Everyone cares about her. Even the Japanese soldier that's not Vic Diaz cares for her. Then there's other women. And they are not treated nearly as kindly in this movie. There's a part where Vic Diaz, who again, let's remember is just the most evil guy. He basically gets uh, his other Japanese soldier, the guy who's somewhat sympathetic, to pick out the 10 most beautiful women in the village, and basically they're going to lock them up so his men can have some fun with them, so we know what that means, right? It is used, again, as... It's twofold, right? One, it's another shorthand to show how evil Vic Diaz's character is, not like we needed it at that point. And the other part is the exploitative element, which is that it allows them to add some sex and some nudity into the film. It is very unpleasant. I mean, it's supposed to be, but I always hate that line of, oh, it's unpleasant, but it's all so titillating at the same time. Nothing titillating about it. It's really, really shitty. It, it's not like we haven't seen that in other movies of this time period, uh, including things like The Big Bird Cage, which use sexualized violence uh, in, in that same sort of way. But it's just, you know, it, it feels like a relic of an era where there's a checklist of things that you need to check off. And that's just one of the more unpleasant ones. It's hard because I, I I it was less sexualized than other versions of this sort of that thing is that true. We've seen. Yeah. And compared to the actual history of Japan and the Philippines, it's pretty tame, actually. Um, considering uh what the Japanese army actually did in, in the Philippines, as well as a bunch of other places, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a much more mild version. It's an important of, that's it. I know. mean, I think that's an important point to keep in mind. Yeah. Which which while also balancing with that, you know, American soldiers were weren't exactly fucking angels. Oh, sure. One hundred percent. I think or that, Canadians, well, by the way. I should be fair that, that yeah. when I say Americans, I'm really lumping in a lot of Western. Well, and I, I think that th this is the issue we have, right? When it comes to Americans depicting the Japanese during World War II, I feel much more comfortable throwing around the racism term, regardless of how the, it's utilized in those films, because those films are mostly made by white men who feel right. that they're superior, mm -hmm. right? In this film, right, it is also... I you know, a, 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 a production of white people, but with the Filipino participation, there's a part of me that's like, I bet you Filipinos are thinking about like the actual violence that they underwent. You know, I, it, it makes me think about how we should think, you know, like for example, I've seen people describe the depiction of the Japanese in certain Chinese films as, as having a certain kind of racism to it. But then I think about like, well, how do we think about the way that the U S depicts Germans in World War II films, right? right? Like, we're not exactly sympathetic to Nazis until, you know, we are, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, but, you know, a lot of times <laughs> we're not very sympathetic in our depiction, but we're often accused of being jingoistic less than sometimes Chinese films can be in their depiction of the Japanese. And I think, well, but there is a, there is a violence there that, that, you know, that part of what's being worked out is actual documented abuse. And historically speaking, there hasn't been a lot of apologies, you know, uh, unfortunately, 
for the history since World War II, a lot of the Japanese administrations have still been kind of on the fascist end. So like, yeah, not even acknowledgement in a lot. Yeah, of yeah, and so like, it's 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 a little complicated. I I, I think it's okay for us. You know, I I I'm a lot less white than you are, Doug. But I'll put myself in the same boat. I think it's fine for white folks to look at this and go, oh, I feel uncomfortable with this depiction of Japanese soldiers. But I also don't want to get too blamey for a film that is. I don't know how successfully, but trying to be about Filipino dignity because I don't know how deep those wounds are. You know I mean, really, I mean? it's about motivation, though, right? right and that's right. the problem here. I mean, if, if we were like, oh, this movie is trying to tell an honest tale of the brutality yeah, that's of fair. World War II that's fair. compared to, oh, we need to make sure that there's a sequence where women are raped because that's what the audience wants to see. I mean, I look, I, maybe I'm being very cynical about it. It's just that the rest of the movie leans pretty heavily. I mean, let's, let's not forget that there's a character that walks around with a, like basically like a monster with a big straw hat in this movie. It's too much of a cartoon to include those serious elements and to have them treated seriously. That said, you already referred to a really tragic moment, that part where the gentleman brings the, the Filipino flag and tries to yeah. raise it in front of the Japanese. Yeah. That part is played deadly seriously, and it's effective. It's incredibly effective because I, it just feels like, oh, that is reflective of a real thing that could have happened. Right? I think that's what it is, though, Doug, is that this film wants to have its cake and eat it, too. It Absolutely. wants to be a respectable war movie, but still get those exploita- exploitation drive-in dollars. That's, that's how my – I mean, granted, I wasn't in the room when they were pitching this thing, but the way it plays to me is – this is a serious war movie, but with just enough spice that we're going to get those, you know, teenage eyeballs all worked up. And, you know, the reality is um, I don't think those those uh, rape scenes, which, are, you know, to be fair, are not super long or as bad as they could be. They don't work in either way. Right. They're not serious filmmaking, but they're also not titillating. They're just gross. And honestly, I said they were essential to the way the plot is structured. I say in the way that they made the movie. In reality, they're not necessary, right? We don't need any of that for the film to work. But in the way that they've structured it around it, it becomes like a big point of tension is like, what's going to happen here? And in fact, one of those scenes leads directly into the uh, decapitation scene, which is one of the best parts of the whole damn movie is when Vic Diaz gets his head cut off. So it's 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 a little it's a little frustrating that it's there. But I I, I guess I kind of understand why the people making the movie maybe felt like, I don't know, like they could get away with it. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, the, yeah. the, it, And it's not that different than what other movies were doing at the time. It's just... Yeah, it's hard to be more critical of this because yes. it's included, right? Yes. But it also, I mean, frankly, it seemed to work. I mean, a movie like this doesn't seem like a clear contender to be released in drive-ins in the United States, but it was. So that combination of maybe having William Smith there as, the, as this white anchor character maybe the violence maybe the sex maybe all that included is what managed to get it a wider release in the first place again it's hard not to be cynical about it because let's face it a lot of the movies that were made in the philippines made by you know u.s distributors and things like that they were made there to be made on the cheap and to be exploitation movies and this fits into that category it just has and this is again what i was saying before the break it has these interesting elements that separate it just a little bit, particularly in the context of this podcast where we've watched a lot of movies where where Filipino characters not only are, are put in the back seat, but are used as just either cannon fodder or sexual fodder. In this movie, we don't feel like only the, the Filipinos are being treated that way because the, the white characters are such a non-entities to the whole action of it. Well, I mean, speaking of uh, <clears throat> who's working as fodder and who's standing out, let's talk about the man that this podcast is de- dedicated to, Vic Diaz. Um, you know, Vic is always doing well when he's playing a villain, but I feel like he's extra sinister when he's playing a Japanese villain. And that might be a bummer for some folks, I'm not going to lie. But for me, it was one of the highlights of the movie, man. I mean, he is the highlight of the movie. I mean, no doubt about it. He seems like he's having fun. And that's another thing. No one in this movie necessarily looks like they're having no, any fun No, they're all so all. serious. Yeah, right? Because it's, it's being portrayed fairly seriously. I mean, he's being very, like, mustache twirling, you know, putting his head back and just laughing at, at the pain of others. Very much in his wheelhouse. You know, it's funny that his very last role in Yamashita the Tiger's Treasure, which we covered many episodes ago, was also as like a Japanese commander, right? It is something that kind of, it fits his talents that he is kind of sleazy looking. You know what I mean? So he's sleazy and has this kind of 
weird confidence about him. So there's a part where where he tries to rape a woman in this. And, you know, part of it is the fact that he's such a horrific, unpleasant character. But the other thing is he takes his shirt off and he's this pudgy, embarrassing guy to a certain extent. And it's just like it just adds this extra layer of gruesomeness to everything he does that he looks the way he does. And I know that's kind of a shitty thing to say about Vic Diaz, the character, but it's why he does these roles so well. It's his combination of confidence, looking the way he looks, and just this swagger that he has. And he plays it to the hilt in this movie. It's like it's like it's like he had a kind of like a personal feeling towards it because he kind of does throw a little bit more into it than you see in some of his other roles where he's just like i am going to go into this movie not only steal it away from everybody but everyone's gonna hate me like with a burning passion by the end which is exactly what they wanted from him and it's exactly what they did and he also gets by far the best death scene in the entire movie i agree um it is the 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 decapitation scene is magic not because it's that well done, but because it is done, it is so much more extreme than anything else in the movie, and it ends with his actual head in the floor. And like I said, he might as well be winking at the camera. It's so ridiculous. And it made me... It was a moment of joy in a movie that, though not terrible, doesn't have a lot of joy in it, man. There's just not much there to be like excited about. And that, as well as the whole final action sequence, was all stuff to be like, Okay, I, this is this is a good way to wrap this up, you know, um, and I appreciated that. I will say, in a very strange uh, way, uh, the the film ends mostly in disaster, like with just a shot of a bunch of dead people, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the screen says, "And Satan smiled." And Doug, you're a, you're a real philosopher here, so I, I expect you to explain to me <laughs> in about two hundred words, um, what does that mean? Why is that how the film ended? Well, the Webster's Dictionary describes smiling as. <laughs> I mean, I do think it's just supposed to be like a final statement that war is just generally a bad thing, right? Even though there is kind of a, a patriotic aspect of it, there very clearly is. Uh, and the fact that there is a, a level of a, um, a Filipino involvement in the action that we haven't seen a lot so far. The last image is, is of, a ch- uh, of a child wandering a pile of bodies of men, women, and children just laying there covered in blood with the idea that at the end of the day, no one wins from this. Satan smiles because he gets his victory. You know, the, 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 there's mutual bloodshed on both sides just because the Japanese are run off. That's not, they have not lost the war at that point. That would come much later. So this is just a sense of even in this small scenario. Um, and, it, and by the way, we haven't really given this away. Our two white anchor characters, both the monster one and William Smith, they die. Maria dies. Basically, anyone of any consequence that was shown for any amount of time in this movie dies except for the child. Yeah, that's true. All, all we're left with is characters who we didn't know. Yeah. So, like, we, we get to see the Fil- Filipino rebels uh, route the Japanese, which is, I guess, a good thing. But it doesn't end with anything. It, it's a real... It's one of the ways the movie is confusing, right? Because I actually think it's a, it's an attempt to take seriously the cost of war in a film where a guy with a burn on his face turns into the fucking Frankenstein's monster. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense, but that's what it is. (laughs) I mean, it's a movie at odds with itself very much. So, and I think that that last little title is, is reflective of that, right? This is a movie that does it want you to take it seriously or does it not? Sometimes it seems like it does. Other times it doesn't. And it's probably better that you don't. Doug, do you want to read this poem that you included? Oh, this is from a Letterboxd review by Douglas Fur, who wrote, I guess he might write regularly poems devoted to the movies he reviews on Letterboxd. So I will read what he has written here. A hostage is a man who knows his state. The holder of him is one who weighs case. Born into life too late, if we cross fate, the inside of you is infinite space. Somewhere in war, a man is left for dead, and back at home a lady will cry for him. The force is moving out from here, Jack said. This Japan rule is dreadful and so grim. Big Vic is boss of this green burial land, but he would like to keep his sword on wall. When Morrow tries to run up his flag band of women, Vic will make a hostage all. No horror, no fun, no speed. With instant fade, this one is only good for a sleep aid. Which... <laughs> it's fair. It's fair. It's pretty, pretty fair overall. <laughs> well... 
you know, we, we didn't knock it out of the park with this uh, A Taste of Hell from 1973. Uh, what You know, hopefully we'll have more luck on our next episode. Doug, what are we talking about on the next episode of Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz? Well, this is very... This is a very interesting choice for us for a number of different reasons. On the next episode of Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz, we're going to be talking about 1973's Beyond Atlantis, directed by Eddie Romero. This is our first Eddie Romero-directed film, I believe. Uh, It might be our second, but I believe it's our first. Certainly, it's the most high-profile. Recently, uh, as of the time of our recording, they have announced the films that are going to be covered on the upcoming season of Mystery Science Theater 3000, and this film... Beyond Atlantis is included on that list. It is one of the uh, kind of core exploitation Philippines set movies from the 1970s. It's one we haven't touched on yet. It just feels like as a conflagration of different elements that we need to address. uh, It's one that we're going to that we're kind of that it's well time for us to look at. So our first whatever happened to Vic Diaz movie of 2022 will be beyond Atlantis. Exciting stuff, Doug. Exciting stuff. I think that's going to be great. I'm looking forward to covering it. I hope it's uh, I hope it's better than a taste of hell. That's all I can say. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate you checking it out. Doug, if they want to hear more of this podcast, as well as a whole family of similar podcasts, where should they go? Well, you can start off uh, on your journey over to Cinepunks.com, which not only has uh, Cinema Smorgasbord's latest episodes, but also lots of other wonderful podcasts and writing. You can follow that on most social networks under the name Cinepunks, at Cinepunks on Instagram, on Twitter, and look forward on Facebook to join the group as well. Uh, but if you just want to check out the Cinema Smorgasbord uh, family umbrella of shows, you can go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. We have podcasts devoted to such diverse topics as the career of Jackie Chan, Carol Kane, Steve Buscemi. Uh, we have the work of Alejandro Jodorowsky. We just recently released our episode on The Inkle, which is uh, which is tearing up our feed right now, as well as the recently launched uh, George Kennedy is my co-pilot. Find that over at cinemasmorgasbord.com or on Twitter at cinemasmorg. That's S-M-O-R-G. And Liam, you are on Twitter as well. I am at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And you're on Twitter as well, Doug. (laughs) At Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. That is correct. Hey, thanks for listening. Is it? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, You know, if you're listening to us on iTunes, go ahead and throw us a rating. You know, five stars only. I don't care if it's less. Keep it to yourself. Uh, Feel free to, to review. You can shoot us a message, of course. Um, and we just appreciate it if you, you know, tell a friend, tell a friend about Vic Diaz or any of the family of shows here at Cinema Smorgasbord. But until next time, we're just going to say good night.